Tonight's New Testament readings are from Luke chapter 1, 1 John chapter 4, and John 1. Uh, and they can be found on page 2 of the bulletin. Luke 1, 30 through 35. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 1 John 4, 1-4 Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have made yourself present this entire time we've been together. There's no mistaking it. We feel your presence. We hear about it. We're moved in our hearts. And so we expect no less when we open up the words that you've breathed life into. Would you now work your wonders for your own glory? In Christ's name, amen. Well, we have just completed the season which the church calls Advent. When it looks back to the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming... And C.S. Lewis had this to say about what he, this is, he called it the central miracle of the Christian faith. In the Christian story, God comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, further still, to ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. Now that is part of the wonder that we just celebrated. That God came. But I want to suggest there's even more wonder to be had. It's not just that he came, but he became. He was made like us. God came down and was made like us. Now, this has been a difficult thing for people to get their heads around all throughout history. 
And there's been a tendency. One tendency is to dismiss it as just impossible. The other tendency would be to rationalize it in a way we can get our head around it. And those tendencies take two forms, typically. The one is to play down the divine nature of Jesus, his godness. And so Jesus would be understood to be a messenger of God, a manifestation of God, an avatar, a guru, a sage, enlightened, evolved. But true God, no. How can that be? It's posited that his followers were actually the ones that made Jesus God. It's the vision they wanted to give to the world. And even for those that held on to this idea that he was God, there there was this fudging in that they would say when Jesus became human, he laid aside any divine attributes. The kenosis theory, for those of you that like church history. But there's another side too, and that is to play down the humanity of Jesus. And so when you go back into church history, you find names like Arius or Marcion or the Gnostics. And they would say, Jesus wasn't fully human. He appeared to be human. He had a phantom body. And if he had a body, when he got up to heaven, he ditched it. And in the modern day, we find the, the same sort of thinking, but it's, it's articulated differently. Oftentimes, the way you probably heard it, if you went to university... Or if you've watched basically any documentaries on religion, I'm thinking of one that came out on Frontline about 15 years ago called From Jesus to Christ. It's this idea that you've got the historical Jesus and then you've got the ideal Jesus. The historical Jesus is mortal and he's flawed and he's sinful, but we really care about the ideal Jesus. And so it goes on and on, the struggling, and I would say uh, misunderstanding, And the church's response to me is really instructive over the centuries. Its response wasn't to try to explain it, but rather to state what was seen in the scripture and try to maintain it, to defend it through the ages. Now, one of those defining moments happened in the fourth century. When Constantine, who was emperor, got converted to Christianity and he called together two councils. And out of that council came a creed, Constantinian Creed or the Nicene Creed. And I have part of it uh, printed in your bulletin. You can look at it with me for a second. And amidst all these different things that were floating around, they said, this is what we see. One Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. And then another defender, Athanasius, had a creed and he added this. He said, we worship one God in Trinity... And the Trinity in unity, neither blending their person nor dividing their essence, contending that all three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit of the Godhead, were distinct, uncreated, immeasurable, and eternal. In short, that Jesus Christ was God-man. 
is difficult for us to understand. This is what the scriptures represent. Fully God, fully man. And it's that second part that I want us to give some attention to over the next couple of weeks. And for those of you already that have glazed over because you, you know, all this church history stuff, like, I don't care about it. Let me say this. I think there's far more at stake than theology. It's my belief that much of the loneliness and discouragement and doubt and the sinful coping mechanisms that we run to are because we don't understand the humanity of Jesus Christ. In fact, in my experience over 30 years working in the church and doing ministry, I would have to say that Christians are far more knowledgeable about the divine nature of Jesus Christ and less so about the humanity of Jesus Christ. So I wonder what would happen if we took some time to think about it over the next several weeks, looking at topics such as the feelings of Jesus, the fact that Jesus grew, the fact that Jesus strived. What will we find? And tonight, I I just want to do a bit of a big picture and talk about... um, the testimony of the full humanity of Jesus, what the Bible actually asserts, and the support it can bring us. So let's do that together in the time that we have. Now, the Bible teaches that humanity, men and women, are made after the likeness in the image of God. And back in the fall, I think we were talking about gender or church offices or something like that. And I, I put a hypothetical question before you. And it was this, if all the men on the earth vanished, or all the women on the earth vanished, how much of the image of God would be left? Our tendency might be, say, 50%. In actuality, it would be 0%, right? You could do the same thing, the same question with race. And I think... Because the totality of humanity is the image of God. Let's take that and just apply it for a second to the humanity of Jesus Christ. If there is one aspect of humanity, and I'm leaving out the dark stuff, right? The selfishness, the evil, because that wasn't in the original blueprint. Humanity is God intended. If there's one part of that humanity outside or excluded from Jesus Christ, we have no communion with God. And Jesus Christ is, is no good to us, no help to us. But thankfully, when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find just the opposite. We find first that Jesus had descendants. He had a family tree. You know, it's, uh, there, there's been renewed interest in recent years with genealogies. Right? I bet some of you have done that. You paid the money and found out, wow, this is really cool. You know, I have 8% German in me. Or I have 15% Jewish heritage in me. Or I have you know, 20% Chinese heritage in me. Whatever it would be. Well, you know, the genealogies in the Bible we're much less excited about, right? We tend to fall asleep to them. We tend to gloss over them. But what's going on right there is the Bible is asserting in a somewhat hidden way that Jesus was human. He had descendants. He descended from David in Israel. And the book of Romans would say that he descended according to the flesh. 
flesh and blood. So Jesus had descendants, and he was born. I don't know, how many of you have had the privilege of actually witnessing a birth? Just curious. Okay. You know, whether it was, you know, your sister, or whether it was a dear friend that invited you in, or it was your own child. I mean, how do you describe that, right? There is nothing quite like that, and we've all been through it, but we don't remember it. Um... Right? I remember just being in there and watching my two daughters born. And I, in one hand, you're just kind of like wanting to turn away, right? Because it's, you know, if you're squeamish at all, I'm not squeamish. So, in fact, at one point, Meg rebuked me because I was just like, you know, I was just like, this is amazing. I've got, honey, I can see the crown. And she said, Glenn, you know, because she was in incredible pain at the time. But my brother-in-law, uh, as my sister was having a baby, man, he tried to hang in there, and he ended up fainting, cutting over his head, cutting over his head, and they moved him into the next room. Right? But I mean, whatever you say, a birth, I mean, it is earthy. Right? It is blood. It is screams. It is all that. And Jesus went through that. You know, I hate the Christmas song "Away in a Manger." Maybe you know why. Because it says, blah, 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 the cattle are laying, and no crying does Jesus make. That's, that's heresy. That's not true. We're told, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Jesus had a point of conception, and he had a birth in the full way. A birth is a birth. And he's not only the son of God, but we're told in the scripture... That he was Mary's firstborn. He was Mary's son. So Jesus was a descendant. He was born. And he developed. He developed physically. You know, we're told in the Gospels that the child grew. That the child grew. Now, uh, around the holidays, maybe some of you had a chance to be around babies. Uh, I did. And, you know, they're just mesmerizing. You're sitting there and watching. You know, I was watching this, you know, I don't know, a couple months old, and he was just fixed on this light. You know, I don't those of you that are pediatricians or mothers or people that understand this stuff, but it, the, the point in the development stage, he was just fixed on it. And this one is learning how to grip. And this one, look, they lifted their head up, and this one is almost walking. Jesus went through all of those stages. He didn't just sort of pop up. Right? He didn't just you know, photosynthesis and grow really fast. You know, and the next day he was this adult man. He grew. He smiled. He fell. He developed intellectually. We get a snippet from a time where he visits a temple and he's talking with the religious leaders. What's happening? His mind, he's hungry, he's intellectually curious. He's at that stage probably where you're going, why, 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 right? He had that stage. He developed skills. We're told that he was the son of a carpenter, maybe a contractor or a carpenter. And he did this well until he was 30. And so he apprenticed with someone. He learned this work. He did this work. This means that he understood what deadlines were. He understood what it means to have frustrated clients. He understood what it means to have pride of a job well done. I don't know if he ever went through a government shutdown, but I'm sure that there were times that the business was slow, right? 
These are the things that he went through. And we might ask, well, why doesn't the gospel give us all these details? Because it's assumed. He's human. What else do you think he was doing? In fact, it's the false gospels, the ones that aren't regarded as credible, that insert little things into his childhood picture, like Jesus was making some clay pigeons and made them fly because he was bored. Or Joseph and Mary had some neighbors that complained a lot, so Jesus struck them blind. Right? These are actual stories in the false gospels. And what's going on there? It's this idea that we're not content for him to be fully human. He had to be doing something. And we also know that he suffered. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was homeless. He wept. He felt grief. He was furious. He was tortured. He was executed. He was fully human. In fact, Jesus was so fully human that the people that had grown up around him uh, the most had the hardest time believing he could be anything but. He goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and this is what they say in rejecting him. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, are not all his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Why? Because he was fully human. We know two things from the teaching of the Bible. That he was truly human and he was completely human. He didn't have some sort of self-healing property like Wolverine or Spider-Man. He was someone that suffered, bled, his skin was pierced, he had bones. In fact, this doctrine is so important, it's interesting that uh, when the Apostle John wanted to put forth a litmus test about whether someone really got, understood, and believed in Jesus, he didn't choose the divine nature. He chose, to, he chose his humanity. You heard it read. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So, there we have the testimony of Scripture. Now, I want to move and just talk about three ways... I think this supports us. And if we lose it, we really lose a lot. First of all, Jesus' full humanity means full identification with us, with you. It's so powerful when someone can identify with us. When they can say, yeah, I know what it's like to be single for years and want to be married. Yeah, I know what it's like to lose a parent. I know what it's like to fight sickness. I know what it's like to be unemployed. I know what it's like to be a minority in a majority culture. I know what it's like. It's very powerful to us. I mean, it can do so much at one time, make us feel like we're included, make us feel like we can go on. In the case of Jesus Christ, because of his full humanity, it means whatever circumstances, whether you're fighting sickness, facing injustice, feeling misunderstood, Christ can authentically and truly look at you and say, I know. I know. But we doubt this. We actually have our own version of the ancient heresies. And I think it often is said like this. Yeah, I know Jesus got stressed, and I know he experienced pain, and I know he was lonely, and I know he was tempted, but, but he was God. And you see what we're doing there? 
We're basically using his divine nature to cancel out his human nature. Or at least to reduce it. And in so we believe a little lie. We say, yeah, Jesus was tempted, but he was God. And essentially what we're saying is Jesus' divine nature made it easier for him than it is for me. It was easier for him to deal with the loneliness and singleness. It was easier for him to experience rejection. It was easy for him to face temptation. This is actually what we got ourselves believing And it alienates us from him when in fact the opposite is true. Jesus is the only one that fought temptation to the end, to the point of death. Think about it. What happens when you and I are tempted and we give in to temptation? We're feeling the the force, the suffering of these things, and what do we do? We bail. We take the shortcut. We just go, I can't take it anymore, and that's where we go. He never did that. None of us knows what it was like to be tempted like Jesus. None of us knows what it likes to suffer. No one, none of us know the point of loneliness that he dealt with. Because why? He took it to the end. The book of Hebrews says this. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, so that you might not grow weary. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But he did. <clears throat> And so, it means that Jesus can not only look at you and I and say, I know and identify with us, but he can look at you and say, and I know things that you'll never have to experience. The worst scenario you have in your mind, you don't have to go there. Because I went there. That's why I came. And so, Jesus' full humanity identifies with us. Number two out of three. Jesus is full humanity. Excuse me. Full humanity enables personal communion possible with God. Jesus' humanity enables us to have personal communion with God. He makes it possible. Now, today people are very eager to say things like, um, the universe, right? Instead of talking about God, you hear a lot more people say, well, the universe was really kind to me. Or, you know, I really just want to be in tune with the universe, with energy. Now, there's a few problems, I think, with that. I think it's, in many ways, it sounds appealing because it's free, it's out there, it's personalized. But think about what you lose. First of all, it's inconsistent. When is the last time that you heard of nuclear power giving birth to a baby? I haven't heard about that. Why? Because impersonal power does not result in personal things. It just can't. There's no way it can. And so the belief that you and I are a result of impersonal power, well, it's just inconsistent. It doesn't make sense. We're so personal. You know, down to the fingerprint, the eye print, and the voice. So... It's inconsistent. Second of all, it robs God of his personality and eventually robs us of our personality. Many uh, Eastern philosophies will say that, you know, we will attain communion with God when we lose ourselves. When your personality is erased, when you become a wave in the ocean. Now think about that for a second. Think about how unsatisfying that is. Right? Basically... 
My heart's desire is to have personal communion with God, but when I finally get to do it, I'll lose myself, so I'm not going to really know. Or it won't be anything like the sweet communion that I have here with people that I love. You know, imagine, ridiculous scenario, that uh, some, a, a dear friend of yours goes on a date, and they come back, and you want to hear about how it went, and they say, well... It was evident that the electrophysical exchanges underlying their cellular, you know, structure were present. Uh, their morphogenic fields were just like beaming, right? Or, you know, you go and talk about the vital signs. People are going to, you know, your friends are going to say, yeah, yeah, okay. What was their personality like, right? What, how about their story? Were they tall? Were they short? What race were they? What color was their hair? It's not the energy that we're after. That means nothing to us. There's no appeal to it. Do we really believe the euphoric heights of communion are going to be achieved by communing with energy? Enough on that. Christianity teaches that the humanity of Christ is the basis for communion with God. That's why we can have communion with God, because God became human. And it's the only faith that teaches that. Now, the Bible also teaches that sin breaks communion. And we know this from our personal relationships. Right? You have a relationship with someone, they do something evil, they do something wicked, and it breaks communion. Maybe, maybe not permanently, But it tears at the relationship. Well, the sin of humanity, our sin, has been so repetitive against God, so egregious, so thoughtless against God, it has rendered the relationship broken. Now, how does that come back together? You need a pretty unique person, don't you? You need someone that can represent the God side and the human side. You need a God-man. You need, as the scripture would say, the one mediator between God and man. 7th century priest John of Damascus said this, For the whole Christ assumed the whole me, that he might grant salvation to the whole me. For what is unassumable is incurable. What is unassumable is incurable. What does that mean? That means unless God comes and walks in our shoes, unless he enters with full humanity, and steps in our place and acts as our substitute and takes not only all the pain and suffering, but the judgment and the guilt, you and I cannot have personal communion with God. And so the humanity of Jesus is critical that that could happen, that he could substitute. And what it leads to is unhindered, free, ecstatic, joyful, unspeakable intimacy with God. Everything is taken away. All the things that make us hesitant. Maybe we taste this a little bit in human relationships. In that moment where you're with somebody and you heard the quote that Jennifer said, where you're fully known and you're accepted. Everything opens up and there you are with the Father, Son, and the Spirit in their full glory of a person and you are brought into it. This is what the humanity of Jesus achieves for us. But lastly, it's not just full identification and full communion, it's full glory. In the last passage you heard read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? That seeing the humanity of Jesus Christ is glory. In two different ways. It's through his humanity that we come to see the glory of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus Christ and the totality of who he is. Not just his divine nature. Because really the lens we're given is a human person to know God. And so we look and we see and we apprehend God. But it's not just the way into glory. It's also making a wonderful declaration that humanity as originally intended is glorious. It's glorious. You see a baby, a bride. You're watching you know, a playoff game and you're seeing a catch that boggles your mind. You're hearing some lecture that you can't, you know, you can't even comprehend. Humanity is glorious, is God intended. And what I love about it, it's not defined like our culture. The prophets tell us that Jesus was an average looking guy. No beauty or majesty to attract us. He wasn't a young millionaire. We don't have any indication that he was sort of, you know, the guy at the top of the town of Nazareth, right? He was a guy you could have easily walked by. This is what they were saying. This is, this is just Joe's son. And he was glorious. Just think about what we're trying to live up against. You know, and you heard, as Tom named some of those fears, Right? What does the glory, the human of glory, look like in Washington, D.C.? What have they achieved? Who do they know? Where do they live? What do they own? What race are they? All these things we define glory by. And here you have the average son of man, Mary's son, and he's glorious. We have seen the glory. And so one day... If you and I persevere, all the dark stuff gets taken away, all the sickness goes away, and we will be fully human. And guess what? So will Jesus. This is the thing that perplexed theologians. That when Jesus rose from the dead, he kept a glorified body, and he's going to keep it for eternity. The only change will be is there will be wounds that can be seen that testify to what he did. And so, my friends, this is just a brief dip into what we can expect as we go deeper into the humanity of our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the glory of Jesus being God, uniquely God, God of God, light of light. And we also extol you that he was fully human. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see that glory in Christ's name. Amen.